Okay, we are on to the book of Joel. So we have two minor prophets left, Joel and then Obadiah. So getting into Joel, mine have flowed a little bit more smoothly to do them in inverse order. Joel has been described um, as one of these books that ties together all of the minor prophets. There's a lot of the themes that you'll see throughout, uh, throughout this book that that are references, quotes, or referenced and quoted throughout the Minor Prophets. Um, so in our, in our flow of thought throughout the Minor Prophets, we've seen that Joel, Jonah is probably one of the earliest, is uh, definitely a unique of all of the 12, as a story, his story to Nineveh. Uh, and then we had these pre-exilic, Israel-focused, so the northern kingdom-focused prophets. That was Hosea and Amos. And then the attention shifted chronologically toward Judah when Assyria came through and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So then the attention focused on Judah. So there were some pre-exilic prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah. That's Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, and then the most, most recently, um, we looked at the three post-exilic prophets, which were um, addressed to the new community after their return from Babylon, and that was Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So, uh, the unique thing about both Joel and Obadiah, mentioned it throughout, but that the dating of these two is particularly difficult, if not impossible. There aren't uh, it, it's all just clues, basically, listening to, the, listening to the address, listening to some of the things they're saying, and we would maybe take the context of the Old Testament and say, where does this fit the best? Because there's a couple different maybe spots that it could fit. So um, we're not going to have a solid answer or, or a conclusive answer because there isn't one necessarily that we can, that we can possess. But we'll, we'll take a look, and, and uh, I'll even probably for tonight... Uh, toss the ball into your court to do a little thinking, to do, a, we'll share some maybe evidences to, in different directions, but, but Joel is a, is a prophet that is not timed, is not placed in a particular time for us. So obviously they knew when he was there and they knew when he wrote, but, uh, but there's no official date. So uh, the other thing that's unique is that we know nothing about this person. So uh, there aren't details of his life aside from that he is the son of Pethuel in verse 1. So uh, he, there, Joel is not an uncommon name throughout the Old Testament, but we don't know any other details about the life of this Joel. So who he is and when he was is veiled. It's, it's kind of mysterious for us. Um, so hmm, I'm actually... Rethinking the order of this, it might make sense to read it earlier than later. Normally, we've talked through all of the some of the historical context, um, but in this case, it might make sense to read it first, so that we have it on our minds. Particularly because we're trying to look for signs, clues toward date, as well as some of the themes. Um, so maybe I'll mention a couple distinctives and something about the address. But aside from that, then I think we'll go ahead and jump in and read. Then we'll um, maybe have a a conversation about when we think this might be cluing us toward historical dating. So um, the recipients that are mentioned throughout, uh, as far as people groups, would be the elders and the priests again. There's mention of Judah and Jerusalem, so that's traditionally described as the recipients, though it's not as clearly stated as it would be in other prophets, but Israel by name or the northern kingdom is not mentioned, and so that could clue us a little bit towards time, but uh, it's directed toward the southern kingdom and particularly the city of Jerusalem in restoration. Then a few distinctives is that uh, Joel does not mention particular sins of the people, We've seen that many of the prophets do that. They lead with that, often an accusation even from the Lord or um, maybe even one of the prophets who've made observations and they cry out to God about the sins of the city. Well, here, um, there aren't specific things that are mentioned. It's more 
um, a focus on some tragic events, historical and anticipated. That's, that's more the, the attention. So he's not listing their sins. And then as I mentioned at the very beginning, there's, um, we won't go through these tonight. There would be too many to really address them all. Uh, but the cross-references between particularly the other prophets are everywhere throughout this. And so one of the questions for our dating would be, are all of the other prophets quoting Joel, or is Joel quoting all of the other prophets? Right? Was he earlier or later? Or maybe some of both, if he kind of falls in the middle. Um, a few notes on the structure, because that would probably be helpful before we read. The first uh, chapter is about a locust swarm. And it sounds like something that's happened. So there's a, there's a locust swarm. The question would be, is it a literal locust swarm or metaphor for an army? And I think the evidence leans more towards a literal locust swarm as an illustration of an incoming army. So if we remember back to Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 32, you think about the agreement of the law, the covenant that God made with them at Sinai, and there's the agreement of blessing and cursing, they obey, there's blessing. Disobey, there's cursing. And you could go back and read through Deuteronomy 28. It's very vivid. And God's words of cursing are quite strong if they disobey. But this would be among the list of possibilities of God's um, disciplining of his people. It would be something like a low harvest or a locust or mildew and blight, things like this. So um, that this happened in Israel was present in in the Deuteronomic Code as well as present. We saw in Amos that there was a swarm of locusts that had destroyed crops. So probably um, a historically large swarm of locusts that destroyed a year of crops as evidence that God was teaching them, warning them of something that was about to happen, I think. Um, But that's kind of the, the flow of thought at the beginning is that there's this swarm literal or metaphoric, that's supposed to teach them something. Chapter 2 moves to um, a military advance, so probably a military swarm, you could say. So there's a locust swarm historically, and then they're warned the day of the Lord is coming, and there's an army that's going to destroy. And, and those two cycles are really chapters 1 and 2. Uh, that's, it's a punishment with repentance, a call to repentance at the end. Well, and then the, the scene shifts pretty strongly because there's God's response to these things. And that's in the middle of chapter 2, starting in verse 18, uh, that there's an announcement of salvation. So this is a traditional flow of the prophets, right? The judgment announced and then salvation announced, and this flows the same way. So chapter 2, 18, there's a, there's a turn and announcement of salvation. And it starts with salvation pretty immediately from this army, in chapter 2 that has oppressed them, and uh, restoration of the land, even restoring um, what the locusts had taken. So the first response of hope is that God's going to undo kind of chapters 2 and then chapter 1, both the military and the crop effect that they've, um, this judgment, punishment they've experienced. And then kind of as a standalone, actually in the, in the Hebrew breaking up of things, chapter divisions, there are four chapters, And the end of chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, is its own chapter, which would make then our chapter 3 their chapter 4. So chapter 2, 28 through 32, which is just uh, five verses, that's its own chapter. And there's a reason for that. It does kind of stand alone in the middle of these two hopeful um, descriptions. So God's going to deliver them from the northern army, and he's going to deliver them from um, what the locusts have done. And then there's this promise of his spirit being poured out. And then chapter three, he's going to announce deliverance from the nations, uh, I think ultimately, and the restoration of all creation, restoration of Jerusalem at the end. So uh, these two movements of hope, I think probably one sooner and then one's later is how it's working. In the middle, there's this promise that it shall come to pass after the first experience of hope that God's going to pour out his spirit. And there's a description there that Peter picks up in at uh, Pentecost. So that's kind of the flow of things. Two, two uh, movements of judgment, destruction with a call to repentance, 
and then two movements of hope and God's restoration and deliverance. And in between those two, there's this promise of God's spirit and his presence being with them. So let's go ahead and read through this, and then we'll have a quick conversation about timing, um, some thoughts, and then uh, some theological themes and New Testament um, quotings of Joel. So, so this is Joel, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Tell your chil- or let your children tell their children and their children another generation what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion." He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down for the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out. For fire has devoured the open pastures. And a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness." Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots, over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Every one marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Every one marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. 
For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So rend your hearts not, and, uh, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep before the porch and the altar, let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army. And will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has, dwelt, who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you done, or what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken." 
Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall abide forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Okay, one pass through, one pass over. Um, what are your thoughts as far as timing? Are there any clues that you heard that might point you one way or another way? Just as a, more as a muse, not that we're looking to make a decision, but to reflect a little bit. Okay, and clues would be? Well, um, I mean, most of them are pre-exilic. So. <laughs> True, there are fewer post-exilic, yeah. But it's uh, a lot of threats um, that could be temporarily fulfilled in exile. Especially chapter 2. Yeah. It's kind of hard for me to get over that piece of it <laughs> like that that seems pretty pre-exilic that that chapter two with the description of this military that's coming through that's coming against jerusalem um it it sounds a lot like he's anticipating the destruction of that city and the language is similar particularly in the in the description of the army you know that some of the comparison to you know, swiftness and violence and their strength and how quickly they destroy a city. A lot of that is similar to some of the other pre-exilic descriptions of Assyria and Babylon. Okay? Chapter 3, yes, sounds uh, down the road. Sort of a um, similar to some of the other Day of the Lord conversations, which we'll, we'll circle back to that as a theme of Joel, but um, that's future, final, final judgment, final deliverance. So I would agree. There's, there's a couple moments in there that people would use to, to date. Um, some of the references to which nations are mentioned but people argue them in both directions. Like, well, this is certainly evidence for pre-exilic, or this is certainly evidence for post-exilic on the same piece of information. Like the list of nations, uh, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia. Um, and then the mention you could say is probably a post-exilic argument. Verse 6, that, they've, um, that the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem have been sold to the Greeks. So that's, that would be a little bit of a later argument, it sounds like. Yeah, Matt? Um, is it not correct that most of the post-exilic writings are not a call for war or fighting, but rather 
see what's going to happen. But the chapter three is it? He tells them to beat their plowshares into implements of war and get ready for war. Does seem more like a to me more like a the Babylonian horde is about to descend on you. You better get ready for it. As opposed to like is that correct that most of the post exilic ones it's not a call for them to arm but a call for them to surrender. Yes, let me let me find in chapter three. I'm where is that verse? What verse is that in chapter three? Three ten. Okay, so proclaim this among the nations. I think he's telling the nations to come to war at the Valley of Decision. This like final again, sort of like what Don was mentioning, this final eschatological gathering of the nations in war against God and he's going to destroy them. So I think there's a, uh, a point to what you're saying, but that verse, I think, is to the nations, addressed to the nations. But yes, that, um, that the post-exilic prophets generally feel a little different than this. This feels like Amos and Hosea, this, like a Judea, uh, Judah version of Amos and Hosea. Um, Especially, again, chapter 2, the warning of the nations marching. Yeah, the, the call to repentance is more consistent with pre-exilic, though the post-exilic do call them to not be like the generations before them. Remember that, like, don't be like your fathers, don't respond in the way that they did. Um, and there is a call towards pure worship. There, there, are, some, there are similar themes throughout pre- and post-exile. Um, but yes, this sounds a lot like some of the calls to repentance again in the pre-exilic. So uh, maybe a few things to, that, that sound more post-exilic. Um, there's no mention of the king. In fact, there's just mention of the priests and the elders. And that, that sounds a lot more post-exilic. When, he, when the pre-exilic leaders would, or they were calling out all of the leaders, normally the princes or the kings were present in that call. But now with maybe the reinstatement of, of a governor and the, the, he's focusing more on the religious leaders, that could sound a little more post-exilic, um, that the priests and elders are the authorities here in the city. The, uh, again, chapter 3, 1 and 2 could go either way. Um, and some of the reading I was doing, you know, they would say it sounds as though they've already been scattered at the end of chapter 2. I think it also could sound like they are going to be scattered uh, by the nations. So there's maybe a few post-exilic pushes. Um, in scholarship, there's been a couple waves. It's, I think it started more as an earlier book, or no, as a, as a later book. And then it's moved more recently to be considered an earlier book. And now some of those who are seeking to, to identify the way in which the book of the 12 is woven together tend to view it as a later book, largely because of the way that Joel is, it, it brings together all the prophets. And most, most, if not all, not quite, but many of the prophets are mentioned throughout in specific phrases. And the idea of knitting together one scroll, Joel looks like a really good book that knits together um, a lot of the others. So that could tend to be a later argument. Um, easy to say that it's not an exilic 
<laughs> prophet. He describes that, uh, that Ju- uh, Jerusalem has walls, and so the walls haven't been torn down. This is either probably late uh, pre-exile or, or, I mean, yeah, late pre-exile or late post-exile because the walls have been rebuilt um, because Jerusalem has walls in chapter 2, verse 7 and 9. And then the temple is also existing and functioning. So while it may be a little bit of a gimme, it's not, it's not an exilic prophet during the middle of, in the middle of exile. Um, some other things for pre-exile would be, um, or at least one other argument, is just its placement in the canon that canonically the intention was generally to, to flow chronologically throughout the prophets and it finds its home between Hosea and Amos. And uh, I was reading a really interesting article even this afternoon um, about the way that the beginning of Joel weaves the beginning and end of Hosea and then the end of Joel weaves the beginning and end of Amos. So this was actually an argument for post-exile, but that it knew it would have its canonical place between Hosea and Amos because it sort of ties in and grabs both of the books on either side of it. Um, so, yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of conversation. I think it, it's actually currently the spotlight in some ways is on the Book of the Twelve to try and do some more scholarship and see if there are people who come up with other good ideas. Um, but, Long story short, we don't know for sure. I tend to be with what seems to be the majority thought that it seems late pre-exile. Maybe even after the destruction of the northern kingdom. Could be. And there may be a possibility that the locusts are, while that's happening, he's like, if it's metaphor, it could be a metaphor for Assyria. Chapter 2 is Babylon incoming. Um, if it's literal, then that's probably not the case. So uh, I, I do think it so far in, in the, de- the depths to which we've gone in Joel that I think it, it probably sounds like a late pre-exile book. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the themes and the theology of the book. What was it that you heard as we worked throughout Yes, many of these will be similar to other conversations we've had because, even as we mentioned, it weaves together a lot of the prophetic ideas. But what are some of the themes that we saw here? Yep. So those two, there's two parallel sections that do that. Chapter 1, starting verse 13. Gird yourselves, lament, you priests, wail, you who minister before the altar, the sackcloth, ashes. And then um, for verse 14, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and the inhabitants into the house of the Lord, cry out to the Lord. That section is parallel with chapter 2, verse, um, well, 12 is when it starts. Turn to me with all your heart, Fasting, weeping, mourning, rend your heart, not your garments, return to the Lord. Then down in 15, you see the parallel. Blow the trumpet, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, let the bridegroom uh, and the bride come out as well. So there's, yes, that's the, those are the two parallel calls in the first two sections of lamentation for destruction, one that seems to have already happened, one that's incoming, at the end of both of them are two parallel calls to repentance. So, yeah, you see the heartbreak associated with sin. The destruction of sin. Any other themes you want to call out? Yeah, Matt? I, I don't know if this is a theological theme. Yeah. Two things. One, do you think, talking about the dating, in chapter 1, 2... Mm-hmm. He's basically saying you've never experienced anything like this. Yeah. The fathers, like, wouldn't that be an argument that this is an unprecedented judgment coming? So that, that's part of the difficulty of the first section, because that's in reference to the locusts. So the literal or metaphorical question. Um, 
It's either the worst locusts, like that, that it may be hearkening back to like Exodus. So like they had this, this plague in Exodus that completely devastated, and now we've had the plague again. Go ahead. Okay, so then that was just one thing. And then I noticed that it's quite generic. Uh, like thinking about what you said before of other prophets, we not only have generic enemies, Egypt and Edom, Philistia, like these are the obvious mm-hmm. hanging fruit of the enemies. Yeah. Or some other prophets, it's very detailed as their enemies. And then the judgments, like great darkness. Great pain, great suffering. It doesn't do like the ones that are be like they're going to boil the children. <laughs> it's yeah, like so specific. It's super generic. Generic and highly natural. Yeah. A lot of natural disasters here. Yeah, so it's almost like um, met a lot of metaphors, perhaps, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. almost like it fits anywhere. That's part of the difficulty. Yeah, it fits but anywhere. I wonder if that theme of like anybody could. Mm-hmm. Any scenario, maybe that's a theme is what I'm suggesting. Like any Jew could pick this up and be like, the great darkness of my soul, the great darkness of our nation, the great pain of this as a result of our sin. And even the sins aren't spelled out like in other books. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even say idolatry really anywhere in here. And the scholars that like a later date like that idea, because it seems to be some, like a summation, and the sins have already been mentioned. You didn't need to rehash those. It's like a, a grand summary of the whole. Some, some, a few, even arguing that it's the last book. Like the, scholar, the, the guy at the end who gets to knit it all together. Yep, Brandon? Uh, with what Eric had said as far as the, um, the response of the people, it, it's a response to discipline. It's, it's a very natural discipline. You know, the locusts are coming. The, you're not going to have food. The sacrifices have been cut off. Um, and all these, these are, are clearly disciplined from the Lord for previous un, unspecified activities. Mm-hmm. But the, so the, the discipline is also a yeah. and, and the reaction. Yeah, and maybe at the end of that cycle or the end of that story is uh, chapter 2, verse 13. The, the character of God, he's waiting. Like he's, he's there. Return to the Lord. He's gracious. He's merciful. So the, maybe the, the, the exclamation point on that is, is the mercy of God. And like we saw at the end of Malachi, and then we read in the psalm this last Sunday, uh, that he's always this way. And so the idea of mercy triumphing over judgment is certainly here. Uh, that you see judgment on his people, but it's not his heart. His heart toward them is forgiveness and restoration. And that's ultimately what he gets, because that's what he accomplishes. So the day of the Lord is definitely a theme here. Again, you see that quite clearly at the end. But one of the interesting things, um, so again, is Joel developing the idea of day of the Lord or is he early and then it's later developed? This probably is, in my mind, an argument more towards early. But every single one of the themes, that the, the movements in this is identified as the day of the Lord. So the, the, what, happens, what happened, past tense, with the locusts, is identified as the day of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And that the locust is also described as the army of God. Uh, veiled reference in, in verse 1, and then uh, explicit reference in chapter 2, verse 25. I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, all these different kinds of locusts, my great army which I sent among you. So you have the day of the Lord historically that God was in charge of. And then you have the sounds like incoming at the gates day of the Lord. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm in my holy mountain, chapter 2, verse 1. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. And here come, I think, probably the Assyrians, the Babylonians, probably Babylonians toward Judah and Jerusalem. And they are described in verses 10 and 11, 11, that this is God's army, right? For the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? 
So you have historically the locusts, which are the day of the Lord, and God is in charge. And then you have incoming, the day of the Lord, and God is in charge of this army. And then at the end, you have uh, in chapter 3, the day of the Lord as well. And there, he is the one that is the judge. And so, obviously, he's um, in charge of himself as the executor of justice. So, it informs a, a little bit our theology of the day of the Lord to remember that this is, this is the action of God on behalf of his people. And we're, we're not, even when we talk about day of the Lord now, we are looking, it's a forward-looking thing. That we're anticipating when we say Perusia, or we say day of the Lord, or we say end times. Yes, we're looking forward, but the themes look back as well as forward. And that's been true throughout all of the prophets, that all of the events of the past, where there was like a great evil, and then God destroyed it. Well, that's a story that's going to be retold time and time again as the volume gets bigger and bigger until the great and, you know, the dragon is destroyed and the, the, the serpent is finally put down and crushed. And that story is told with to the greatest magnitude that it ever could be told. And then, and then it's done and then it's over for the, maybe the last verse of the same song that's been repeated. And so the same thing is true of Day of the Lord, that there have been days of the Lord, you know, evil will rise up, judgment, deliverance, and that teaches us to anticipate the great and terrible day of the Lord that is in coming, uh, the greatest one of them all. So uh, that's, that's certainly a theme, probably something that inf uh, should inform the way that we think about that day as a whole. Um, Joel is also quite familiar. You can just tell some of the way he's talking about Deuteronomy uh, 2832, some of the way he's talking about probably Exodus, some of the other deliverance narratives. He's not only comfortable with Scripture, like with the law and with how it's intended to work, he's also very comfortable with those themes that make most modern readers uncomfortable, us kind of squirm. This, um, the curses in Deuteronomy, <laughs> And the holy war, like God being the commander of the locusts, God being the commander of this great and terrible chapter two army, that's not comfortable, but Joel seems very accustomed to the idea. He's like, well, yeah, this is how God works. And this is, he just seems to have a, to his, to date, a very strong biblical theology of how God interacts with his people. Um, then probably one of the most significant ones, parts of the text from the New Testament perspective, would be the end of chapter 2. So this is uh, the, the pouring out of the Spirit of God text. We'll just reread that briefly. Um, verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward, so after this second day of the Lord according to Joel's 3, uh, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And everyone is kind of involved here. The sons and daughters, the old men and young men, the men servants and maid servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then there's some of the things that Pastor Matt was mentioning earlier, these sort of natural wonders, wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon into blood before the, great, or before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We'll pause there because Peter paused there. <laughs> so this is um, one of the longest quotations of the Old Testament in the New. So after Jesus' ascension and uh, everyone's gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, this is Acts chapter 2, well, then the Spirit of God descends upon the disciples, upon the apostles. And um, everyone's wondering exactly what's going on. You remember there's these divided tongues as a fire that sat on each of them, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Everyone's kind of curious what's going on. Uh, they even are wondering if they're drunk already so early in the day. And then verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and says to the crowd, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. 
Note that it's probably significant where he's at. Like everyone is gathered in Jerusalem, not unlike the call of Joel says to gather everyone together and to repent and hear the spirit of God comes upon them. So um, he says, verse 15, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes from verse 17 all the way to verse 21 to quote this entire Hebrew chapter of, um, of Joel minus, save, the last phrase. So he ends with uh, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he begins, I mean, he already began his address, but then he calls them. He says, you know, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus um, is the one that we should be looking toward. And um, so then he moves on and he works through Psalm 16 as well. Um, But that's the starting point of his text. He identifies what happened at Pentecost as the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel of God's Spirit being poured out. So just think about what's going on here because in the the Old Testament to this, to date, when we think about presence of God and we think about the Spirit of God, the presence of God, they greatly desire to be with the people, right? But he tends to be with the people in a, in a locative sense or toward a, toward a place or location like the tabernacle or toward the temple. And they want his presence there and his glory there. Then his spirit would be with people generally in an individual sense, that the spirit of God might come upon someone for a particular purpose or because he's anointed toward a particular responsibility maybe. Um, but they think of it locatively and individually. That's how, that's how the presence of God is with them. So here, that it would come to pass that God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh that this is a prophetic sign that the presence of God has returned to his people. And it's returned to his people in a, in a significantly new way that's poured out on all of them. There's this direct encounter and interaction with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. So that's a magnificent difference and one that we enjoy today that the presence of God is not only, you know, in a place, but the place is us. He's in us. So while Joel thinks of that, we'll just rem- or maybe remember that Joel is thinking of that as eschatology. He's thinking of that as the last days, that when God does this, I mean, what he says next, I, I mean, I think maybe this is too early to say this in my study of it, but I think we're kind of living between verses 29 and 30. Um, that the, the Spirit of God is poured out in those days, and then he's going to show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So I, I think we're, we're right in that line. I mean, we're in Joel's eschaton. We're in the last days. And so some things have happened back to Christ and to the fulfillment of many promises, and some things are yet to come, which is why we're waiting, uh, as Peter described in his epistles. So just, uh, just keep in mind, though, the drastic difference between how historically or in the Old Covenant the people experienced the presence of God and the privilege with which we experience the, pr- the presence of God today. Um, So that's another theme. And then that last verse, verse 32, um, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's probably a familiar quote as well because Paul quotes that in Romans 10, 31. 10, 13, 10, 13. Thank you. Dyslexia. Um, And what's kind of neat about the beginning of Romans 10 is, an, uh, yeah, is that Paul is doing his own weaving. He's seamlessly moving from Old Testament text to Old Testament text, not unlike Joel did in, in, his, uh, in his description. Paul's not as though it's proudly showing off, but he's showing off his knowledge of the law and the prophets when he begins in verse 10, because in just a few verses, in these first 10 to 15 verses, he's quoting from Leviticus. He quotes from Deuteronomy multiple times in chapter 30. He quotes from Isaiah 28. He's quoting from Joel 2, 32. Um, and so it's, it's uh, 
a call, a string, of, a string of quotations in chapter 10, that's revealing the need for and calling Israel toward true faith. And uh, so let's just read through 10, or 5 through 13. Chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. So Moses writes about the righteousness which is in the law, and here he goes into Deuteronomy, or into Leviticus, excuse me. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth that the, uh, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there you, he anticipates Joel 32, 2.32. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And here's Joel 2.32. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he goes on to the, the beauty of those who speak the gospel and the rejection of the gospel by Israel. Um, so Paul uses this in his call to true faith to Israel. And it's a fitting text to bring uh, to their attention, to call on the name of the Lord, a call to repentance. So those are, I think, the two most significant New Testament uses, usages of Joel, certainly the long text in Acts chapter 2, uh, and then Paul developing it in Romans chapter 10. Any other thoughts you'd like to draw out or, or questions to put on the list? Something we read that you say, I'd really like to know what that part means so that we can be sure we cover this in our journey through Joel. Anything else before we close? When Peter prophesied in Acts, he likely didn't have the Old Testament in front of the word in Joel. So right. that, that's amazing that he quoted so much of Joel, obviously from the Spirit, um, verbatim. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. Yep. Absolutely. It is encouraging. Yeah. That's... Oh, they do have access. He was just saying it probably what he probably wasn't just reading from a scroll. That, it, that in this moment he may not have been. You know, let's open the let's open the book of the twelve. Yes, they certainly had access to them. Yeah, synagogues and things. So. Okay. All right. Well, let's close in a word of prayer.